coincidence? I think not. No, uh, Dr. Whitney, um, just a good friend and has become a mentor to me. Um, he wrote this book, 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. We're going to be using this starting next Sunday evening. It's going to be a great kickoff for our Sunday night school. And I want to encourage everybody to grab a copy of this. They're $5. They're right back here um, in the Welcome Center. You can grab a copy. And when you do, also sign up to bring a dish because we're going to kick off next Sunday evening at 6 p.m. with a, we're going to go full-on Baptist. We're going to do a potluck. Um, so we need you to bring food. It's going to be a great time of fellowship, great time of study uh, in God's word as well. So I encourage you to pick one of those up. Enough of the promo. Um, before we jump into God's word in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus, you can go ahead and be turning to the book of Leviticus at this point. Um, but before we do so, I just want to just pause for just a second and be reminded of this truth. Um, you've been watching the news. I'm sure you've seen what's going on uh, right now in Afghanistan. And I, I want want to make sure you understand this, that what's happening with believers in Afghanistan right now is a daily reality for people all over the world who call themselves followers of Christ. We have a freedom here in this country that is bar none, um, amazing, an amazing act of God's grace that for 244 years we could be here, right? That there wasn't a provision until we had a country and we had a constitution and we had a bill of rights and we had some protections. We, we've had that not but for a couple of centuries. But what an act of God's grace that we get to gather. I, I was just thinking as I was reading the news reports of the Taliban coming door to door and checking people's phones for Bible apps um, so that they could be arrested or killed. That's the reality. And I'm just wondering how many translations of the Bible we have on our phones. Not only that, how many Bibles we have in our homes. What an act of God's grace that we live in such a time and such a place. And so we should not waste it. We should not um, think that it's going to last forever. It's not promised that it will. And we should be using this time for his glory. So I'm going to just pray before we come to God's word that we are even thankful that we are able to do this. Amen. We're able to gather and we're able to open his word without fear of somebody busting that down that door to arrest us for it. Um, what a great act of God's mercy and grace upon us. And then pray for those who are suffering right now. Pray for those who are hurting right now. Father, I pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, specifically right now in Afghanistan. Those who called upon your name are your children who belong to you because of Jesus who belong to us as part of the body. And when they suffer, we suffer. Lord, I pray that we would give pause right now. Lord, that we would unite ourselves with them in their suffering by praying, but also by enduring. Lord, I thank you for their endurance, that by your Spirit you are allowing them to persevere until the end. Lord, may we be people now who would open your word in solidarity with them. That as they have to live with rifles in their faces, we have freedom. Lord, may we be faithful now to use that freedom for your glory. Lord, I, I pray that we would now live in solidarity through our prayers, but also through our actions. That we would live as those who have been set free in Jesus Christ, and that no one can take that freedom from us. No matter what government, no matter what we live under, 
we are always under the banner of your grace, being set free by Jesus. Help us to live that way, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Leviticus chapter 1. I thought about naming this uh, about naming this series, You Lost Me at Leviticus. Um, because if we're being honest, every year Genesis gets read, right, in our Bible reading. We, we all start the new year with this idea that we're going to read through the Bible. Genesis, yes. So you're really familiar with it. Exodus, yes, until they start repeating everything again, right? Leviticus, let's go to Psalms, right? It's kind of the way it works for a lot of people. And so what, what, what could Leviticus hold for us? We're New Testament believers. We're, we're set free from all these laws. We don't have to have all of this. And, and today what I hope I'll do is I'll give you a little bit of a taste of what the rest of this series in Leviticus is going to look like, but also that you'll see why Leviticus is essential in the life of the believer. First of all, let's just lay it out there. Every word of God's word is essential in the life of the believer. It's all breathed out by God. So there's, there's a, there's a reality that Leviticus is essential because God is the one who has inspired Leviticus and given it to us so that we can grow, so that we can be made holy. And you see that actually in this way most clearly in the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is God speaking. You actually see that plainly even in verse 1 of chapter 1. The Lord called Moses, right? He called and he spoke. You're going to see that idea that the Lord spoke to Moses or some variation of that used 38 times in the book of Leviticus. And then another 18 times he's going to say something like the Lord commanded Moses. So here's 56 times in the book of Leviticus, God is speaking directly to Moses so that we as God's people can hear from him. So Leviticus is essential because we're actually hearing the voice of God in the book of Leviticus. That makes it essential in the life of the believer. There's also this fact that when you read through the New Testament, it's actually hard to understand some of the stories in the Gospels and what's happening there and even some of the stories in the book of Acts and understand why that's important unless we have an understanding of the book of Leviticus and some of the laws and some of the purity rules. So there are stories like the woman with the issue of blood who touched the hem of Jesus's garment. What, what is that? Why was she considered unclean? There's the lepers and the, the rules that governed how a leper would be deemed clean. That, they all come from the book of Leviticus. Then you have a, in the book of Acts, you have Cornelius getting a vision from God that he should go and send two people to go find Peter to come and tell him the gospel. The only problem is Cornelius is a Gentile and Peter, as a Jew, has been told he can't eat unclean things and go and have fellowship with a Gentile. And so Peter's up on the top of his roof and God gives him a vision and this blanket comes down with all of these animals that are unclean and God says, take and eat. And Peter says, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God says, what I've made is clean. Why? Why is that a big deal? The book of Leviticus will tell us. We have to have an understanding. There's allusions all throughout the, the New Testament that unless we have some sort of understanding of the book of Leviticus, then we're going to miss it. I mean, the book of Leviticus is the most important and most used book in Judaism. And so we have to understand the roots of our faith through the book of Leviticus. But today I want you to see specifically in the book of Leviticus this, that the themes of atonement and holiness of God's 
payment for our sins, of how our sins are actually paid for, how we come into right relationship with God, and how we get God's righteousness transplanted to us so that we can be holy and right with him, get its clearest explanation in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus. So when we see New Testament themes of Jesus' atoning sacrifice for us at the cross, and when we're told, be holy for I am holy, the way that happens is clearly outlined in the book of Leviticus so that we can know what it meant for Jesus to die on the cross, why it was important for us to have a once-for-all sacrifice. And so I want you to see that our individual holiness, our, our corporate holiness as the body of Christ, finds its root here in the book of Leviticus. So if I were to put it plainly, why is the book of Leviticus essential? Because the book of Leviticus is an invitation for God's people to enter into his presence and to meet with him. But also the book of Leviticus is God's provision for sinful people to come into his presence to meet with him. God is inviting us in to his presence, but he's also providing the way that we would gain entrance. This is the good news that we see at the root of the book of Leviticus. So just remember the context here. It was a little while ago we finished up the book of Exodus, and there God has entered into a covenant relationship with his people at Mount Sinai where he's given them his law, but he's also said, here's how you build my tabernacle, my kingly palace, my place to live among you as my people. He's making for himself a kingdom of priests, a people for his own possession. He even says that in Exodus 19. It says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. He's going to love his people for all the earth is mine. Verse six, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of of Israel. God wants his people to know that he wants to dwell among them, that he wants to be their God and they will be his people. So he gives plans for this tent of meeting, this tabernacle where he will come and dwell among his people. This will be his palace among his new kingdom. And now the book of Leviticus is going to give the people clear instructions on how they get into this tent of meeting and actually get to be in God's presence. So God is set up in the middle of the people, but he's also sectioned off from the people because he is holy. So you have this fence around the tent of meeting so that they can't see in because God is holy and they are not. Got it? And so he's saying now to get in, this is the way you get into my presence. And, and that in and of itself is an act of God's grace. That in and of itself, when he's giving us all of these rules and all of these laws is, I don't want you to die. That's what God is saying. He's saying, I'm going to give you the rules. I'm going to give you the sacrificial system. I'm going to give you these things because I don't want my people to die. I want you to have access to me to be in my presence. So this book is not just a, a book of dead laws. It's a framework for the work of Jesus. It's a framework so that we can understand God's love for us and his grace. And the fact that there's a pursuit that we're supposed to have in our lives as believers of holiness, of coming into God's presence. It's a launch point of worship as we come into God's presence to worship him. So I want you to see here in verse 1 of chapter 1, Leviticus, follow along with me in your copy of God's word. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him. There's that God speaking, essential to the book of Leviticus. 
And he called to him and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them. So there's a mediator. Moses is going to be the one who's going to take God's word to them. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord. So there's an expectation that they're going to come into God's presence. When, not if, it's when they come into the presence of God. When they want entrance into the tabernacle, into the tent of meeting, into God's presence, this is the way it's supposed to happen. You shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. This would be uh, the idea of an animal sacrifice is now going to be put forth. Verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, that that being a, a cow, so now a bull, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. Verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. I'm going to give you a clue. Bible study 101. If a word gets repeated, pay attention. Did you see the word? Did you hear the word? Accepted. You might want to underline that. We're going to have to come back to that in a little while because it's an essential part of what we're talking about. That our desire would be to be accepted within the presence of the Lord, before the Lord. And now the offering is going to be accepted to make atonement. Verse 5, then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. You catch that? The priest isn't doing your dirty work. All right? You're having to kill the bull there at the tent of meeting. And it shall be accepted for him. You shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that it is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flit. Okay, I'm just going to stop right there. Make sure we understand this. It's going to get bloody. It's going to get a little disturbing. I literally thought about this. We were joking a little bit about it this morning. I thought maybe, because I've actually traveled in North Africa and the Middle East a little bit, and I have, uh, I have some clothing that I got from some Bedouin people there that actually would look a little bit like high priestly garb. I thought about putting it on today and like standing on the front porch of the church and just like spraying red paint everywhere. And then like the Bremers would be wondering where their sheep went. And, uh, you know, it's like, you know, but we're not going to go that route. But I, I want you to understand there's like there's something bloody and gory about this. And it's for a purpose. It's not it, it's not. It's not worthless. We're going to get to that in just a moment, but I want you to actually wade through this. It's going to get rough, and it's there for a purpose. Verse 6, Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. The priests are there to make sure the burnt offering can be burnt up, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. That's just simply for purification reasons. The rest of the animal is clean, but the backside not so much. So you're not going to put something unholy on the fire. So you wash the backside, right? And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You're going to see that that's what you do with a bull. A sheep will be pretty similar. Verse 10 if his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, that being a sheep or a goat, from the sheep or the goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it 
on the north side of the altar before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and you shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the leg he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head. This is the only time that the priest is doing the dirty work. Got it? Everybody else has to kill the bull or the sheep or the goat. But here there's provision for the poor, it would seem, in this way, for the priest to do this. Right? Is wring off its head and burn it in the altar. The blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Did you see the other word we might want to underline? Pleasing. Accepted. And pleasing. These are going to be major themes of why we need this sacrifice or why the people of Israel need a sacrifice to come into God's presence. What's really happening here is this. God is personally inviting his people to come and worship him. God personally invites his people to come and to worship him. He wants us to come into his presence. So he's personally reaching out. He's personally proclaiming, come and worship me. Here in verse 1, he says that the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, speak to the people. So he's saying, come, right? He's personally telling the people. He's speaking these words himself. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord. He wants us to come, and the invitation is personal. He speaks his invitation. God is the one who is saying, come and worship me. But God is also the one who's going to define what that worship looks like and how it's supposed to actually happen. It's essential for us to understand that the first step in coming before God to worship him is not to come with, I really want God to know this. It's to, it's to say, I really need to hear from God what he requires. The first step in worshiping God is to hear from God, not for God to hear from us. It's an important part. In fact, it's essential in the life of a believer for us to hear from God. We'll never know how to be acceptable and pleasing to the Lord unless he's the one who tells us how to be acceptable and pleasing. We need to hear from God. That's what he says in Exodus 19 that we read earlier. You need to obey my voice and keep my covenant. Then you'll be my treasured possession among all peoples. And in the book of Exodus, God has already outlined what the sacrificial system is going to look like. He gave Moses the blueprint on how he's going to be worshiped and how people will be able to come into the tent of meeting. He's a king living among his people. And if we're going to have an audience with the king, the king is going to set the rules for how you come before the king, right? You don't get to come into the king's throne room when he's the one with all the power by going, hey, king, Right. You come before the king on his terms. You come before the king when he bids you come. You don't set the schedule. You don't set the timing. You don't set the rules. The king sets all of that. And so God is inviting his people and telling them how to come before him. So hear the invitation. He starts here in chapter 1 with how you come before him. And it starts with a whole burnt offering. That's what he required of 
the people of Israel. So here the invitation, the invitation from God is to come to him on his terms, to worship him by his design, to not be bound up in our own preferences, but to be subject to his purposes and his desires for us. Why? Why? What's the big deal? Well, it's because his ways are better than our ways. His purposes are better than our purposes. His desires for us are better. In fact, they're not just better, they're best for us. But how often do we get wrapped up in our own desires, in our own preferences, in our own ways, and we just want God to kind of put a stamp of blessing on it, right? But he says in his word what he wants. In the New Testament, he tells us what he expects of us in worship. We're told to encourage one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, to to come together for the reading of the word, to submit ourselves to one another in love. These are all ways that he wants us to worship him, to proclaim how great he is. So God personally is inviting us as his people into worship him. But he also graciously provides the way for his people to come and worship him. He doesn't just say, come, good luck, I'm holy, you're not. Shield my eyes because it might get messy. He says, you're going to come. I want you to come and now I'm going to make it possible for you to come. That in and of itself is great grace because sinful people cannot rightly come before a holy God. The the Bible makes it clear that the wages of sin, the, the just result of our sin is death. That all people have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. None deserve to be able to come into God's presence All deserve for his righteous justice and his righteous wrath against sin to be poured out on us. And God is the one who then provides a way for that wrath towards sin, for that just righteousness to be removed, to be put somewhere else. Because death is necessary because of sin. God's righteous judgment and wrath has to be poured out in death. Look at verse 3 and verse 12 and verse 13. There's something there, and I I drew your attention to it, right? That there's something there that people in their sinful state cannot do. We cannot, in our sinful state, be accepted or acceptable to God. We cannot be accepted or acceptable to God. We are ritually unacceptable before the Lord. When we come to worship him apart from his work, apart from his grace, we don't have a standing with him. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us very plainly that even our good deeds, even our righteousness is as filthy rags. It's ritually unclean and impure, ritually unacceptable before the Lord. We need God to provide a way for us to be accepted into his presence. We need his grace. And this is at the center of what it means to come before the Lord in worship is we come and live in his presence and worship in his presence, not by our ability, not by our worth, but by his grace. We are the people of God by his grace. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. That's what marks us out as the people of God. And so we need to live as those who are pleasing in his sight. And and God here in the book of Leviticus is giving the people of Israel rituals to follow to provide 
for their acceptance and for their pleasing nature to the Lord. Now, admittedly, rituals get a bad rap, right? We're not really we're we're not really ritual people, are we? You, you probably have seen the the bumper stickers or the the mugs that say it's a relationship, not a religion. You've heard that one, All right? Or it's like relationship is greater than religion. I get that. Um, I would just say this. There's a couple of problems. Here's the first problem. Jesus followed a whole lot of rituals and a whole lot of religion, like going to the synagogue every Sabbath day, right? Like following all the feasts and festivals. So for me, it's like if I'm going to wear the T-shirt that says, you know, relationship is greater than religion. I can't wear the WWJD. What would Jesus do bracelet at the same time? That, that, that might be a mixed message, right? Because Jesus was involved in the rituals. Jesus was involved in the rituals. He was actually going to take part in many of the rituals. Now, here's the thing. Jesus was also the fulfillment of all of those rituals. So, yes, a relationship with Christ is greater than just going through the rituals. But here's what I want you to understand. The New Testament church has rituals, too. We do the Lord's Supper, don't we? Kind of a ritual. And what did Jesus tell us about the Lord's Supper? Every time you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. Paul tells us that we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns when we take this meal. There's a ritual to it. Baptism is a picture of something greater. What we have to understand about rituals, the rituals themselves are not the problem. It's the hearts of the people who are doing the rituals that are the problem. Rituals have no meaning apart from faith. Rituals have no meaning apart from actually believing that God's grace is being poured out on us, that God has given us a way to honor him and to worship him. So I would say this. The reality is that rituals play an important part in reminding us of our need for God, reminding us of our need to hear from God about his blueprint for his people. They're a reminder that rituals only hold meaning when the heart is engaged. It's the heart of the person that makes the ritual meaningful and purposeful. People are right that going through the motions or vain rituals makes no difference. But religion that is from a heart of faith, we're even told in Scripture caring for widows and orphans is what? True religion, right? So there is a fact that religion and the heart matter. It's a a different matter when the heart of faith is engaged and God is pleased when his people draw near by his prescribed means, what he's designed, he wants us to draw near, trusting that his plan is the way that we can be made right with him. He wants us to draw near by his means in faith. Hebrews eleven six says this, in fact, it is impossible to please God without faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near. That's that same language. Whoever would come to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We have to have faith. We have to have faith that his grace is sufficient, that his, even the rituals are an act of God's grace. Many people talk about salvation as accepting the Lord, but this text would seem to say something different. The truth, I believe, is that our greatest need is to be accepted by the Lord. 
We, we have a, a notion in our mind that we're the kind of the starting point of this whole thing. The fact is, God's the starting point, And what we need is to be acceptable to him. We're the, we're the ones on the outside. He's the one on the inside, which means he's the one who needs to accept us. How does that happen? Well, he, by his grace, tells the people of Israel, here's how your worship is acceptable to me. Here's how your worship is pleasing to me. God graciously gives the people of Israel a way to be accepted. The Bible calls this way, this only way to be accepted in the presence of God, calls it atonement. That's what the text tells us, is that this offering will be an atonement. Look at verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. This is how God is going to accept his people and their worship is through atonement. This is what is necessary. Otherwise, otherwise we remain in sin. Atonement is what God is God's gracious gift to make his people acceptable and pleasing in his presence. This is what he has designed as the way, a gracious gift to make his people acceptable and pleasing in his presence. Otherwise, we do remain in a state of sin, in a state that only deserves death, in a, in a state that only deserves God's wrath. But what God has done is shown us great grace. So I'm going to say it again. Atonement is God's gracious gift to make his people acceptable and pleasing in his presence. And so you've got to see the book of Leviticus and the sacrificial system is God's grace. It's not just meaningless laws. It's God's grace to the people of Israel that they could come into his presence. So this sacrificial system is God's means of providing a death that his wrath and his judgment against sin deserves, but it would be placed on an animal, not on the people. This is God looking at his people and going, I want you to come worship me. I just don't want you to die. I'd rather a bull or a, or a sheep die than you. That's God's grace. That's God's mercy. Because they deserved it. We deserve the death that our sin has bought for us. I mean, even the English word for atonement, right? That at one meant. It's actually three words put together. This idea that we can be reconciled to God, to be made right with God at one with God, verse 4 says, laying his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. God provides the means for a ransom payment for sin to be made so that we can be reconciled to him. God provides that means for this ransom payment. We need to be paid for, bought, and he has made the way so that we can be reconciled to him. This term atonement that's here in verse 4 implies that a person coming before the Lord needs a ransom and purification. And God's grace provides for both. And so God gives very explicit instructions on the whole burnt offering that is to be given by those desiring to come into his presence. He gives explicit instructions because atonement is not something we actually can accomplish. It's an act of God's grace. And he wants us to be in right relationship with him. He gives actually multiple types of sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. This first one is called the whole burnt offering. The Hebrew word is, is hola, right, or alal, uh, signifying the rising of the smoke before the Lord. So it's this burnt offering that this smoke rises up. The, the word is actually the root of an English word that we would use for what happened in Nazi Germany in the 1930s and 40s, the Holocaust. 
because it's the full incineration. So it brings to mind this gruesome reality. And yet that which was not pleasing to the Lord and actually breaks the heart of God. It's actually also something that is just a reminder of the gruesome reality of sin in our world. And here in the book of Leviticus, this is to make us right with the Lord. Isn't it just true that whatever God gives us, we are really good at corrupting? We're really good at using against him and his designs. And this is the same. This is the same. Instead, what's happening, what's supposed to happen is this, that this whole burnt offering is supposed to be a pleasing aroma to the Lord, whether it's the whether it's the bull or the sheep or the goat or the bird, it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. There's a process of atonement, this holy burnt offering of a person's sin being ritually and symbolically placed on an animal and then God's just wrath, wrath towards that sin being placed on the animal as well so that we get the righteousness from God. This is You can see it right here, can't you? You should be able to pause for just a second if you're a believer and begin to see the root, the kernel of the gospel, can't you? Can't you see it there that God has made a way for us to be made right with him and our sin is placed on another so that that righteousness can be given to us. There are three types of animals that can be offered as a whole burnt offering for atonement. And here we want to see these really plainly specific instructions were given for each in verses three through nine. God gives instructions on an animal from the herd, a bull in verses 10 through 13. Animals from the flock, sheep or goats. And in verses 14 through 17, birds. And it's presumably for somebody who was poorer, those who didn't have the flocks and the herds. And God makes provision for everyone. But the process for the bull and the sheep were pretty much the same. Right? You can read about it. We read about it just a little while ago. And Alan Mosley gives a really good synopsis in his commentary. And I just want to summarize it for you here and give a little commentary myself. You, you would start by bringing the spotless perfect animal without blemish to the gate of the tent of meeting. And I want you to just think about this. That meant everybody was killing animals at the same gate. It meant every time you walked in, you were going to be reminded of your sin. Every time you got there, you were going to be reminded of the need for atonement. You would bring this animal seeking acceptance from the Lord, trusting that God was making a way for a right relationship with them and understanding that it is your sin that keeps you from this right relationship. That's the faith necessary for this to actually have effect is that you're trusting God and his plan and understanding your sin and your role there. And in the ritual of faith, you would take and place your hand on the head of the animal sacrifice. The sin of the worshiper was symbolically transferred to the animal. There's nothing magical happening. There's no magic sparks. It's just a... Symbolic transfer to the animal. Placing a hand was establishing a relationship between the sinner and the animal, the sinner and the sacrifice. But also it would be the person whose hand was on the head of the animal that would then receive the atonement that that animal was going to be sacrificed for. You would get the benefits of the sacrifice as well. And what follows is a grim and gruesome Reality check from the spilling of the blood to the gathering of the blood to the splattering of the blood to the cutting of the animal to all that goes into the rest of the sacrifice to the whole burnt offering. And it was there as a gut check, as a reality check for all who have sinned. And I want to just pause right here and make sure you understand what follows. All the bloodiness is there for a reason. And it is a reality check for anyone who would say, 
my sin is no big deal. For anyone who would say, my sin's not hurting anybody. I mean, if it brings me happiness, surely it can't be that bad. What's right for me is right for me. Don't judge me. All the arguments and justifications come to a gruesome reality check right there at the gate of the tent of meeting. This has been the truth since the Garden of Eden that the wages of sin is death. When God looked at Adam and Eve and said, in your disobedience, you will die. Sin requires death. And God gives a bloody reminder in the book of Leviticus of this truth. You would kill the animal at the gate. You would kill the animal at the gate. Let me say that again. You would kill the animal at the gate before the Lord. And the priest would take over from there, spilling and gathering the blood to complete the offering of atonement. And every time a sacrifice was made, every time the blood was spilt, every time the blood was splattered on the altar, every time the animal was cut into pieces, every time the sacrificial smoke rose in the tabernacle courtyard, every time the fire flared up because of the fat that was put onto the altar, it would be a reminder that the wages of sin is death. And only God can provide the way of atonement and forgiveness. That only our Lord can provide the way of atonement and forgiveness. So as we work our way through Leviticus, you're going to see several realities. You're going to see this bloody pattern, this bloody reality of the effects of our sin and the consequences for our sin. You're going to see God's perfect holiness and our, our complete inability to stand before him in right relationship unless we have his grace. You're going to see over and over again God's gracious invitation to come to him on his terms and not our own terms. Not, not through empty rituals, but because his ways are best. And he wants us to come through faith and obedience to his blueprint and designs for his people. You're going to see a gruesome reality that the sacrificial system was never going to actually accomplish for us what we ultimately needed. Because you just had to keep making sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And the fires kept burning and the smoke kept rising. The fact is that people would come and make these atoning sacrifices and then have to come back and do it again over and over and over again. The fires of the altar would never go out constantly stoked by the sacrifices of the people, constantly stained by the blood that signified the sin of the people and the death as its consequences. So what did God do? What would God do about this? Did God leave his people in an endless cycle of sacrifices? Leave people guilty because they could never sacrifice enough? They can never sacrifice enough to truly be made right with God, to truly please him, to truly be acceptable in his sight? You see, today the truth is the same, that the wages of sin is death today. All sin will be punished by the just, righteous wrath of God against sin. But here's the thing. God has made a way, not for sin to escape being judged, but he's provided a way for us to have atonement. So here's the way it's going to work. Either people are going to pay for their own sins under his wrath and righteous judgment for eternity, or God is pouring out his wrath towards sin and his righteous judgment on a substitute sacrifice, on a once-for-all sacrifice, Jesus Christ. God did not leave us in a helpless estate. No, God sent a once-for-all sacrifice. We did not need a system. We needed a once-for-all sacrifice. So he sent one of the flock of Israel. 
He sent a lamb without blemish. And Hebrews 9, 26 tells us he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself once for all. See, in the sacrificial system, God was demonstrating our need for atonement for sins. But in Jesus Christ, God offers atonement for sin once for all. Oh, what a joy it is to know that we walk by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for us. A sinless one giving himself for sinners. That he is the one who suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that, we might, that he might bring us to God. See, George Whitfield said that although we're believers by nature, are far from God and children of wrath, even as everybody else is, it's amazing to think how near we get brought to him again by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's once for all for us. And oh, what a pleasure it is today to tell you that if you're lost in your sins, if you're outside of the tent of meeting, you haven't come in, you have an invitation. The invitation is to draw near to God, to be made right with God. And God is here, right here among us, right now. And he's saying today is the day of salvation. Today is the day where the atonement can be applied to you. That your substitute sacrifice, your once for all sacrifice, your fragrant offering to the holy God is Jesus. So give him your sin. Place your faith in his substitution in your place. Today is the day to call upon his name to be saved, to trust him in his death and his resurrection for you and to be made right with God. That's our desire as a church is for the world to know that the invitation is there. The invitation to come is there. The way to come is only through Jesus Christ. That's my prayer for you today. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me, if you would, as we close out the service. In just a moment, we're going to sing. But before we sing, I want you to read with me of this great and living hope. Because it should be good news for the believer that he is not requiring us to make sacrifice out there on the front door every time we come in. But because of Jesus Christ, the once for all sacrifice, we have access to come before him as his people. Titus chapter 2, would you read with me? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people.